Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle Breaking Points or something. Um, we're we're back on the Breaking Point set again. Don't ask. We got time constraints and whatnot. So here we are. A lot of um, demand for the studio space. A lot of demand is right. Uh, anyway, today we're going to be talking to Doug Henwood. Doug Henwood did a video with the Gravel Institute talking about uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And so kind of interested in diving into that topic a little bit deeper. I have a lot of questions because... You know, I can't speak for you, but I've always been kind of agnostic on the issue mm-hmm. of Bitcoin. Um, I understand some of the arguments in favor of it, yep. but I do lean slightly skeptical, especially in recent times when you see how how much the how much it swings wildly. Certainly doesn't feel like a safe investment. Yeah, you know. I, so I went from uh, agnostic to hard skeptic. Hard at skeptic, this point. and not because necessarily of the wild swings. I mean, but it really. I mean, it just basically seems like a, a fraudulent business model that a lot of people have gotten sucked into and have been really hurt by it. So um, we'll get him to lay out the case, though, what it is, and sort of start from the the basics and try and understand what's yeah, going on. Yeah, and I'll try to I'll try to give the other side of the argument as good as I can, uh, so that we give uh, you know as many perspectives as possible here. Yep. Uh, but anyway, before we get to that, we had a wee bit of an election the other night. Indeed. Um, I talked about it on uh, the Kyle Klinsky show. You talked about it on Breaking Points, but yeah. you wanted to touch base on some of those things, so go ahead and shoot. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of astonishing. Uh, some of the good guys actually won for once. It was uh, against the odds. Uh, you had massive multi-million dollars of spending come in on the side of the corporate establishment Democrats, in particular in this race uh, in Pittsburgh for an open congressional seat. Summer Lee, who is a state rep in Pennsylvania, who actually ran, I think it was two cycles ago, she ousted an incumbent there who was kind of good old boys club, classic corrupt type old school Democrat. She came out of nowhere um, and beat this guy and has served now in the state legislature for, I think, four years. She was really the favorite to win this seat for a long time. And she's solidly on the left. She's definitely a Bernie Sanders progressive, if not, you know, all the way in the sort of leftist category. Uh, and uh, so at the in the very final stretch of the race, uh, several PACs, including APAC, the American Israeli, what's the rest of the anyway acronym? APAC. They their PAC spent three million dollars nearly in this race to try to defeat her. Nearly worked, but they came up short. So she ultimately prevails. Then you have uh, John Fetterman, who was a burning guy, Medicare for all, whatever. He just wipes the floor with the corporate establishment darling, Connor Lamb. Connor Lamb to the slaughter. Lovely to see. And I Fetterman did it while literally laying in a hospital bed, getting a pacemaker. Homeboy had a stroke, and he won. Every single points. county in the whole state, okay? So that's uh, for the Senate, uh, the Senate primary in Pennsylvania, key state, obviously. You had that seat that was vacated by Connor Lamb to get slaughtered by Fetterman. That open congressional seat also went to a Bernie delegate. Um, you had a, a woman named Jamie McLeod, McLeod Skinner. Skinner who defeated uh, Kurt Schrader, who is one of the people who helped to kill the Medicare prescription drug pricing reforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and is total corporate sellout type of guy. He also was like, you know, helped to kill Build Back Better. All of that, Biden came in and endorsed him, and she still was able, it looks, the ballots aren't all counted, but it looks like he would need a miracle to pull it off at this point. So that was a big deal. And then, Kyle, what was really interesting is you did have a couple of progressives who lost in open seats in North Carolina. Again, they were faced with, you know, multi-million dollar ads run against them and all of that. But we looked at that and we're like, this is a, you know, this is incredible. Like, progressives really sent a message that they're done with the Joe Manchin wing of the party. 
And then you had several media outlets that spun this as like, this wasn't a good night for the left. What did you think of that? I mean, it's like they wrote the articles before the results came in. Basically. Yeah. Like what the left won like what, 75% of their races? That's the best I've literally ever seen in my entire life. It was like the most successful election for the left I've ever seen in my life. So to say that that's not a good night for progressives, what's the bar? Do we have to win literally every race? Right. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, the, the biggest thing of the night, I'm trying to think of what I would consider the biggest thing of the night. Fetterman was almost a foregone conclusion, even though he had a stroke because he was up so much. So that was yeah. kind of expected. Um, you had the Democratic establishment almost disarm in the final weeks or month of the campaign mm-hmm. for Conor Lamb. They abandoned him, which on the one hand is a good thing because Fetterman is way better. But on the other hand, that does sort of worry me a touch is like, what did Fetterman say to them behind the scenes that made them put their guns down? So mm-hmm. I don't know, and we'll have to wait and see. I hope he's not going to disappoint us in short order, uh, which he might do. Um, Summer Lee ended up ed- edging it out. Look, the, the big story, like you said, is more the money. It, I always say this. It takes all the king's horses and all the king's men to keep those establishment Democrats in front. And what happened here is the bubble of doomerism and nihilism really popped. Because even with massive amounts of money flowing in to the corporate candidates— the left ended up winning most of the races this time around. Now, that's a rare occurrence. Most of the time, the person who raises the most money ends up winning. But look, it just shows that it's possible. It just shows that we're capable. And so, I mean, look, I, I walked away from that election feeling like a million bucks. My big takeaway was, and you saw this in two of the races in particular, that the Democratic base, Normie Dems, are disgusted with the centrist and corporate wing of the party because of Joe Manchin and because of Kirsten Cinema. So some of the warnings that we've had on the left of like, guys, this is not good. This is not good electorally. We got to care about policy. You got to care about who these people are taking money from. When it felt more abstract, it didn't land as effectively. And people thought, oh, well, we just have to vote on electability and that's all that matters. Well, this time in the Fetterman-Connor Lamb race, you had uh, voters telling the New York Times, we don't like Connor Lamb because we think he's, quote, just another Joe Manchin. Lamb had received Manchin's endorsement and was touting it. And by the way, I saw a quote today from Manchin. He's like, he's like, I think they want, I guess they want something more exotic or something like exotic. that. Dismissing. I don't know if that was the word. I don't what know. is he, a lizard? <laughs> oh, we need something him. exotic. Yeah. What are you, a cockatoo? Um, um, but yeah, McLeod so, Skinner also was attacking her opponent, right, saying over and over, you're the Joe Manchin. Manchin of the House. You're the Joe Manchin of the House. And Schrader, by something the way— more sensational. That's what he said, not exotic. Schrader, by the way, <laughs> killed— um, Lower prescription drug prices. I know. And she ran some fantastic um, ads raking him across the coals for that. So the argument is, like, for the corporate Democrats, they got so cocky that they they didn't even think they had to pretend anymore to care about, like, good policy. Right. It's like the voters were like, at least lie to me and say you want to do shit. But the establishment Democrats were like, status quo. I mean, they watched Joe Manchin blow up every every part of the Biden agenda. And so— the knock on the lefty candidates has always been like, well, they're not reliable Democrats. They may not be there for you when it counts, when it comes to like actually getting these things done. And then it turns around and the reality is actually the lefties were there for for you to get the good stuff done. Right. And it was these corporate types. They were the ones who were the problem. They were the dinos. They Democrats were the dinos. in name only. <laughs> they were the ones who were not the loyal Democrats, who were not ultimately backing the Biden agenda. And so you have this very visceral reaction now to the mansion wing of the party that seems to me to be really uh, effective 
for progressives who are trying to win these intra-party battles. So to me, that seems like a very significant and different direction. Now, the question is, we're just kind of debating this with Summer Lee. Full disclosure, I've known Summer for, you know, for a while. I don't know her personally. She's not like a personal friend, but I've always been impressed with her. Um, and I watched some of her speech on election night, super fierce, super fiery. Certainly, she's watched what they tried to do to her, the sort of establishment Democratic allies coming in with these millions of dollars and lying about her in the ad. I mean, it was ugly, all the things they did to her to try to defeat her. And just one other thing I have to say about this, Summer will be— the first black congresswoman from Pennsylvania. And think of what they say about how they support people of color and women of color, and then how they did everything they could to defeat this woman and prop up this white guy union-busting lawyer, by the way. So my question, though, is um, do you think that once they get there, like, do you think there is a chance that they'll be different? Do you think we're just going to have our hearts broken again when we get excited about, like, oh, we got some good candidates through the primaries, and then they end up in Congress or end up in Senate, and it's the same old story? I think they're better in this respect that when it comes to a vote on something like Build Back Better, they're all going to vote the right way. Yeah. And I think that difference matters in yeah. terms of, like, are they going to be the Nina Turner who can lead the charge and be the leader and take the oncoming fire? I have no idea if that's yeah. the case, I and mean, probably not. They probably won't be that. But— they're not going to block Build Back Better. They're not going to block elder care. They're not going to dr- block universal pre-K. They're not going to block lower prescription drug prices. And that matters for something. You know, it matters for something. It's not everything, but it matters for something. And what do you think the impact of the money is? Because there's two ways that I could see this going. On the one hand, if you're Summer Lee, you could look at all that money that was spent to defeat you and basically say, like, screw you. I know whose side you're on. It's not mine. I see you clearly as the enemy, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to govern as such once I'm there. Mm-hmm. Or do you think it has the effect of like, oh my God, I got to kind of play nice if I keep this money out of my race next time so I can hold on to the seat? I think it's 60% to 40%. The 60% is, let me try to get these people off my back and play ball a little bit. That's my guess. Because that seems to be That's what everybody ends up doing. Yeah. Nobody really has the balls to be like, yeah. Fuck off. I'm well, done with you. What, no, mean, nobody has that. That's what we saw with the failure to endorse Nina Turner. For of course. Because they were bullied, they were threatened. And, and they think, like, nobody's seeing this. Said, like, we like, see it. Right, we're we're seeing all of this. stand down. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it, it might all come to naught anyway, not to be, you know, not to rain on everybody's parade, but, yeah, these candidates won. Now they're going up against Republicans in a wave election for Republicans. So what I'm afraid of is if slash when a lot of these people lose, then the corporate Democrats turn around and say, see, we would have won if you guys just voted for us. Which, of course, is nonsense because the corporate Democrats would have lost by more than any of the progressives right. might lose by. Well, um, it, for, for Summer, it's a, it's a Democratic district. She's going to be the congresswoman, assuming they have to go through a recount. It's very, very close in that race, but it looks like she came out on top and she will likely be the next congresswoman from that district. So that one is kind of a done deal. The Kurt Schrader one is interesting because I'm already seeing this argument made. That's a difficult district. It's a swing district. And um, so people are already saying like, okay, well, you might be happy about this primary win, but then she's probably going to lose in the general election when he might have been able to win. So I think it will be probably used in that one. Fetterman, to my mind, is very clearly a vastly superior general election candidate than Conor Lamb. And the fact that the Democratic establishment would even think, and he had all of the establishment endorsement backing, by the way, Conor Lamb did. The fact that they would even think that this guy would be a superior candidate is just like silly and absurd because I do think the landscape is going to be very difficult for Democrats in general across the country and specifically in Pennsylvania. But, you know, I think with Fetterman, they've at least got a shot. 
Yeah, true. Fair enough. Um, all right, so let's move on here. Elon Musk. Elon Musk is uh, going around doing Elon Musk things. Indeed. So he tweeted something yesterday that caught everybody's eye. I'm actually going to try to pull it up here. We, we have a video that I'll show you in a second, but let me see if I could find the tweet. I don't want to paraphrase it. I want to give his, his exact words. The gist of it was, hey, I'm going to vote Republican now. Um, honestly, as if that's a surprise to anybody after the things he's been saying recently and where he's been trending. But anyway, Elon Musk tweeted the following. In the past, I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindness party. By the way, I already have a problem with what he said. I, I know. Like, like, I, like, what does that even mean? What are you I, talking about? Define right. kindness that's party. That's like the dumbest reason to vote for someone ever. But it's not like it's not even what they are. Like, what does that mean? It's like, so these are political parties. They're like soulless. It's a corrupt, very vapid, way of viewing. Politics. It really is. Very and then childish. he says, "But they have become the party of division and hate, so I can no longer support them and will vote Republican." So it sounds to me like what he's saying: there's uh, people who are Democrats were mean to me, so now I'm voting for Republicans. Which, by the way, if you base your politics on who's mean to me and who's nice to me. Mm. That is honestly the silliest way anybody could ever view politics. Yeah. You have to go policy issue for policy issue and like record on record. I don't, if Bernie Sanders could sleep with my mother <laughs> and I'd be like, I mean, I got to vote for him. Homeboy's got the, you know, I agree with his record. Like he could <laughs> sp- slap me in the face and call me a cuck and I'd be like, all right, I got to vote for you, dog. I mean, you're a little disrespectful. But what am I going to do? Like, that's the way politics works, at least if you're using your brain. Who do you agree right. with more on paper? Who do you agree with in terms of their experience? Yeah. He's just saying, like, meanies over here, is, so I'm going to run into the arms of, like, Ron DeSantis or whoever. This is my issue with um, Elizabeth Warren voters. Okay, the, b- before you get to that, hold yeah. on, because I want to read the last line. Yeah, now, yeah. watch their dirty tricks, uh, their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. So he might be trying to get ahead of a story. He might be getting ahead of a story where something's going to come out about him and he's going to say, look, it's the lying liberal media or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that was what I always hate about the Elizabeth Warren voters who were like, these Bernie people are too mean. Now I'm voting for Joe Biden. It's like, oh, so you just had no principles. (laughs) That's what you're saying. So you're not thinking about this at all. You're going to vote for the person who politically is on the total opposite end of the spectrum. That makes a lot of sense. It makes no sense. But anyway, so he went on to speak about this in some weird forum. Let's take a look at that. And I, I would class myself as, as a moderate, and you know, neither Republican nor, nor Democrat. Um, and in fact, uh, I have voted voted overwhelmingly for Democrats uh, historically, overwhelmingly. Like, I've, I'm not sure, I, I might never have voted for a Republican, just to be clear. Right. Um, now, now, this election, I will. <laughs> the Democratic Party is overly, overly controlled by the unions and by the uh, trial lawyers, particularly the class action uh, lawyers. Um, and generally, if you if you'll see something that doesn't that is not in the interest of the of the people, um, is, if on the on the Democrat side, it's going to come because of the unions, uh, which is just another form of monopoly, and the uh, the trial lawyers. Uh, that uh, that's where actions will be happening from the Democrat side. They're not in the interest of the people. And then, um, to be fair, on the Republican side. Uh, there's, there's, if you say like where is something like not not ideal happening, it's because of corporate evil um, and uh, re- religious zealotry. Um, but that's generally where the bad things will be coming from on the Republican side um, that are not representative of the people. So, um, in, in the case of Biden, he is simply too too much uh, captured by the unions, um, which, which was not the case with Obama. Um, so. In the case of Obama, you could have, you know, he was sort of quite reasonable. Um, and I think he took more of a view uh, that, you know, obviously you need to take the concerns of the unions into account. 
but uh, there, there, are big, there are bigger issues at stake. And, and unfortunately, Biden does not do that. Look, I know there. Uh, Elon has some like really hardcore fans online, but I just I just want to talk to them directly, real quick. Look, I know that's your boy. I know you like him. He has no idea what he's talking about. None. Like none of that is grounded in reality, even in the slightest. This idea that, well, he's right about the Republicans. The Republicans are accurate. Republicans yeah. <laughs> are controlled by corporations and religious zealots. True, but he says Democrats are controlled by unions and trial lawyers. Yeah, in like 1972 they were, ever since the DLC and Bill Clinton and third way politics and the Blue Dog Democrats and the New Democrat Coalition, ever since then, the Democrats are also controlled by corporations. Right. And unions have less sway than they've ever had in U.S. history right now. The, the idea because Biden pays lip service and he says goofy things like, I'll be the biggest pro-union president God ever made. I'm mixing a Trump quote and a Biden quote. Here. I'll be the biggest union president in history or something like Most that. Pro-union Most pro-union president. Pro-union okay. Comment. What has he done? But then he Other doesn't. than the one thing he did was uh, a decent NLRB that yes. actually listens to the concerns of unions, which, which is a good thing. Uh, but which is just like actually literally upholding the law. Exactly. Like it's not even being pro-union. It's, it's not like being pro-union. Upholding the law. But the PRO Act... <laughs> Has he done any, he hasn't lifted a finger for the PRO Act, which is an actual pro-union piece of legislation. Correct. Has he done what Bernie Sanders has called for, which is, hey, cut off the subsidies to all these union-busting companies. You shouldn't be allowed to get a federal government contract if your company is union-busting. He I didn't do that. ran on that promise very clearly. Could do it. He doesn't need mansion cinema, the parliamentarian, the filibuster. Doesn't need any of that. Could do it today. Just gave Amazon another multi-billion dollar contract. So, so the bullshit. idea that Democrats are controlled by unions and trial lawyers is preposterous. And he calls he calls unions there another form of monopoly. What are you talking about? Right. So that was, there is a lot I want to say. First of all, there's an idea that Elon's very special. You know, he's like this unique outside of the box thinker or whatever. This is just standard issue corporate talking points crap. Exactly. Like this like, oh, it's the trial lawyers and the unions. Well, of course, if you're like a billionaire business dude, you don't like the unions because you want to be able to have total control over your workers mm-hmm. and them not have a say in your workplace, and you don't want to get sued if you do things wrong. So it comes like directly out of his self, self-interest as a capitalist. Mm-hmm. Nothing mm-hmm. special or original or unique about this analysis whatsoever. Standard Wall Street ghoul type of stuff. The things that he says about unions are so delusional that it's, like, it really is crazy-making. The idea that they're a monopoly, I really want him to lay out how and why he arrived at that conclusion. I would love it if they had a little bit of pricing power in the marketplace to be able to, you know, lift wages for their membership. Union density is so low right now because you've had corporate control of the Republicans and the Democrats, union busting, or in the Democrats' case, some of them outright union busting, some of them just tacitly letting it happen, that they have actually very little, sadly, very little influence in terms of wages and conditions in our marketplace and very little sway with administrations, clearly based on the results. Even the idea that Biden is more pro-union than Obama Neither one has been great for unions. Technically, the legislation that Obama was pushing for, the uh, Employee Free Choice Act, that he also didn't really lift a finger to do, but it was actually further more pro-union than even the PRO Act ultimately is. On the merits, I I give him a wash. Obama also put, you know, a sort of like actually law-abiding NLRB ultimately in place. He didn't say as many pro-union things as Biden does, but I don't know that— there's really much substantive difference between the two of them. So the whole thing is extremely silly. It comes directly from the place of him being a 
union-busting capitalist looking out for his own interests and catering to the base that he thinks he has online. Yeah, I'll just say this. If the Democrats were controlled by the unions, I would be so I much like more pro-Democrat. Much more. And they would be in favor of so many more based policies, and they would actually fight for those policies. Yeah. You would have them advocating for a $15 minimum wage, for example. Yeah. You would have them advocating for paid sick leave or paid maternity leave or paid vacation time or perhaps like a four-day work week or something like that. I would love that. With, yeah. w- what With Elon Musk saying what he said there, he's openly and honestly admitting like, I have no interest in like raising the minimum wage or more benefits or more vacation time or things of that nature. And to your point, it should be relatively unsurprising because he's a billionaire in his own respect and because he's a business owner. And so just understand that's the way he thinks and that's where his allegiance lies. So this idea that he's like the people's billionaire or something, it's absolutely absurd. And again, I guess just final point real quick. it feels so like Dave Rubin-esque to me mm-hmm. to do the whole like like you had like a almost like a, a religious transition at this late stage in your life. Like he's in his 40s, right? And he's, well, the Democrats were mean to me, so now I'm gonna vote Republican. Like, what does that mean? Like, what do you actually value? What do you actually care about? What are the policies at the core of it? And he's thinking about politics like a 14-year-old Redditor posting lay epic memes. This is also supposedly someone who cares a lot about the climate crisis, right? I mean, that's his whole deal with the electric baby. I don't know. I don't know why he did the electric cars. Yeah, I mean, so if you actually care about this thing that you claim to care about, then there's pretty clear difference here, even though obviously none of them, neither party is sufficient in terms of what they're pushing Yeah, but Biden pro-Paris climate agreement, Trump against it. There's no equivalence on that front. Trump is way worse on that shit. Very clearly. Um, The other thing that I think is worth noting is the original answer is the video. He said that first, and then the clip started to circulate, and then he started to get pushed back, and that's when he posted this other explanation of, like, they used to be the, what do you say, the kindness party or something? I think something I still have it. Like Hold that. on. And then, like, In the past, the I voted board. Democrat. They were mostly the kindness party, but they have become the party of division and hate. Oh, I forgot so, to make this point. We just had the Buffalo white supremacist terrorist kill, basing it on this idea of the great replacement theory, and there is, without a doubt, a much softer, kinder, low-key version of the Great Replacement Theory that's echoed by a lot of these Republican politicians yes. and Republican media figures, and he has the nerve to call the Democrats the party of division and hate the same fucking week that shit happens. Well, it's like, what are you talking point. about, dude? Yeah, that is a great point. And so, but it seems like the there was pushback on the original, like, I don't like unions um, answer. And so he, he came up with it. this, which right. is more of that, like, Rubenesque sort of, like, yeah. direction of, you I know, didn't change. wokeness or wokeness bad. Or I whatever. didn't abandon the Democrats. They, they abandoned, abandoned me, me. Yeah, or whatever. Exactly. It's like, whatever, dude. Anyway, the, I, I'm interested to see if people are right <laughs> in that he's trying to get ahead of some sort of story. Because mm-hmm. he says, now watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. Um, so, anyway. There you have it, Elon Musk saying and doing Elon Musk things. You guys judge for yourself. Very much so. All right, one more that we wanted to bring to you. Um, we covered this on Breaking Points, but I'm interested to get your reaction. Okay. I know you covered on your show the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, was uh, creating this, they called it Misinformation Governance Board, mm. or maybe Disinformation Governance Board. Disinformation. Know, whatever, Disinformation yeah. Governance Board. And they put at the head of it someone who's firmly entrenched in the sort of like resistance liberal mode of politics, Nina Jankowitz. 
it led to a huge backlash, um, both to the board itself, because people were like, okay, Ministry of Truth, that doesn't sound great. And then as you dug into um, who this woman is and what she's been about, she has herself peddled some misinformation or disinformation, especially with regards to, you know, she was she bought into all the Russiagate stuff, the Alpha Bank um, connection with the Trump servers, the, the Hunter, Hunter Biden, Biden thing. She was like defending having that censored on social media. Yes, and saying that this was, you know, that this should be viewed as a Trump campaign product. That's what she said. Um, that's, so, that's beyond the pale. Yes, and she's offered some terrible ideas, like allowing blue checks on Twitter to edit other people's tweets, which is, like, really one of the worst ideas I have ever heard. Imagine letting me edit people's tweets. Like, I would just put, like, fart noises and emojis <laughs> of, like— Camels and shit. Like, I would just fuck around all day. I I don't know what's going on in the brain that came up with that particular gem of an idea. So there was a lot of critique. Now, a lot of that critique came from the right. But there were also people like us who were on the left. There were also people who were— CNN criticized that shit. Dana Bash criticized that shit. Dana Bash did a very uh, actually hard-hitting interview with the the head of DHS— Pushing him on, like, well, what is this thing actually? What does it do? She was like, what if Trump came up with this? Would you be cool with him picking somebody to fill the role? Yeah, sure. And we're like, no, you wouldn't be. Like, you're just lying right now. Fucking Seb Gorka as the head of, like, a disinformation board? Are you kidding me? Right. So, anyway, the criticism was actually ideologically across the board, even with liberals like Dana Bash. Um, Now, there were plenty to also defend her and defend the idea and all of that. But the way the Washington Post and Taylor Lorenz specifically— covered this story in the fact that after a backlash, the Biden administration has now put a pause on, ended basically probably forever, the idea of this board. Rather than just covering that significant news for what it is and accurately portraying it, they she decided to go all in on how terrible this right-wing coordinated attack on Nina Jankowitz was. The article was so disingenuous And so um, it was extremely ideological, too. I mean, really, if it was going to be anything, it would be an opinion piece. But even then, it doesn't really pass muster because it's just not honest or truthful. So her headline was, How the Biden Administration Let Right-Wing Attacks Derail Its Disinformation Efforts. She says, a pause of the DHS newly created board comes after its head, Nina Jankowitz, was the victim of coordinated online attacks as the administration struggled to respond. She goes on to say, Jankowitz's experience is a prime example of how the right-wing internet apparatus operates where far-right influencers attempt to identify a target, present a narrative, and then repeat mischaracterizations across social media and websites with the aim of discrediting and attacking anyone who seeks to challenge them. It also shows what happens when institutions, when confronted with these attacks, don't respond effectively. She does not include much in the way of making the case that the uh, criticism of Jankowitz was unfounded. Um, She does completely ignores that there were any non-right-wing voices of dissent here either. And also, I mean, look, it's very rare that the government actually is responsive to public criticism. In this instance— they were, and that public criticism led to get to the correct side of an issue. How's that a bad thing? Um, you read the piece to me, and it made me miss the old school neutrality, both sidesism journalism. Because I was like, even that's better than this. This is just like a, it's an opinion piece that omits like key parts of it, 
and it is written like a manifesto or some shit. It is. Yeah. Yes. And well, it's very clearly Taylor's story about herself. That's what the right, piece yeah. is. Because she thinks she's this victim of coordinated right-wing attacks and everybody on everybody's failed me. And it's, you know, and so that's what she sees in every story rather than actually being truthful about what happened here or even, you know, just explaining like, the facts of the news. I think the thing that frustrated me the most, though, is just treating the idea that a disinformation board being bad is just a right-wing idea or just right. a crazy beyond-the-pale idea yes. when actually the exact opposite is true. I was talking about this. I don't understand how that idea ever cleared a room full of Democratic staffers. There wasn't a single person in that room that said, well, hold on now. The government getting involved in a disinformation board is like, by definition, unconstitutional. It's totally against the First Amendment. And then they, these people end up contradicting themselves, too, because on the one hand, they say, oh, don't worry, this board doesn't really do anything, so it's not even all that important. But then in the next breath, they'll be like, this board is really important and we yeah. need it to take They're on derailing the disinformation. disinformation yeah. efforts. How, How dare you? you take down but this also, important effort? Right. It's like, wait, but is also, it important wait, or is it does not do anything? Relax, it's no big deal, this board. It doesn't really do anything. But also, Total it's essential and I can't believe you killed Total it. Contradiction. Yeah, but it, like this used to be the most obvious thing in the world where everybody would agree left and right. The government, the government's job is never to quote unquote fact check. That's just not their job. That's not the business they're in because the general idea, everybody understands they have their own motivations and their own concerns and their own biases and their own perspective that is influenced by their very privileged position in society. So I, I don't understand how that's now become an issue where somehow you're either right wing and or just insane to say, hey, maybe the government's job is not to, you know, snuff out, sniff out disinformation. Also, uh, Nina Jankowitz was, you know, put in charge of something that we can't really tell might be really important or might not matter at all. Uh, well, she's and, done now. She's gone. Right, she's done yeah. now. But what I'm saying is that if you are put in a position of power, uh, you're going to be subject to public scrutiny. Right. Like, this idea not, of, like, you can't criticize. That's what, like what? A, not a nefarious, coordinated, right-wing attack. It was genuine that's disagreement that was voiced. Democracy. That's called democracy, okay? Now, listen, I'm not vouching for everything that was said on Twitter. I'm sure there were ugly things, sexist things, all of that. I do not condone it. Don't do it. But— Ultimately, what happened here is the administration got a backlash. It came from a wide variety of places, even though, yes, there was plenty of right-wing criticism of her, and they thought better of it. That's called democracy. Well, okay? actually, yeah, credit. <laughs> credit That's a now. good thing. Credit to Biden for disbanding this yes. shit. Now, I don't know. See, I'm curious if it was because of the backlash in particular or because somebody finally went to them and said, this is never going to this is never going to actually work. It'll get slapped down in court like that. Because it would get slapped down a court like that. You can't have a disinformation board that's run by the government on any issue because that is against the First Amendment. That's My them determining what information is good or bad. Decided it, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Okay. You know, well, that's either way. Guess. And they probably saw like the, you know, Mary Poppins video of this lady too. Oh, you whatever. showed me that and I couldn't believe it. Well, and here's the other thing. Okay. if you Tell everybody what that is if they don't know. So she was clearly like a theater kid. So, Nina Jankowicz, the, the woman who was going to run the disinformation board. So she did this whole, I think it was on TikTok, video of her singing the Mary Poppins song saying disinformation is really quite atrocious, that one. Yeah, so she did, remember, like, we wish you a mother Christmas. It was like a version, it was like that, basically. It was like. Yes. Yeah, it was like a super political yes. resistance liberal super song. This is not somebody who's interested in finding truth. And that's the thing. Okay, first of all, I object to the idea of the Ministry of Truth. On principle, yeah. But 
if you're going to do it, like, you have to at least try to pick someone that people are going to be like, I see them as being a neutral figure. Not neutral, this, objective. Yeah. This but is, this person's not neutral or objective. Or objective. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is someone who is very clearly an ideological resistance lib. That's fine. But, you know, she shouldn't be in charge of, like, deeming what's true and what's false, especially when she has a documented record of getting it wrong in some pretty key and significant ways. Indeed. Anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into Doug Henwood's going to talk to us about crypto. And he is the author of a great book called Wall Street. Um, He is a longtime journalist and economic analyst. So let's get right to it. And joining us now is Doug Henwood. Great to see you, Doug. Oh, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, So I've been watching these headlines. So here's one from NBC News. Crypto crash stokes some financial crisis fears. The crypto market has shed almost $2 trillion in value, triggering some concern it could hurt the larger economist, uh, economy rather. So we wanted to have you on to really sort of start with the basics. What is crypto? What has the trajectory been? What's happening right now? What are the risks? So let's just start with the very basic question of what is cryptocurrency, where did it come from, what was the original idea that's sort of behind this whole thing? Well, one of the, you know, I wrote about this for the nation in 2014, and for the last eight years, I still haven't figured out what the problem is that crypto is trying to solve. I mean, it's really not very clear why it even exists. It's a kind of virtual money of a sort, but it doesn't actually fit the definition of a money. I can talk about why that is in a moment. Uh, it burst to the scene when a paper uh, was uh, published by someone using the name Satoshi Nakamoto. No one knows who he is, whether he really exists, whether he's a consortium of you know hackers or what. Nobody really knows who Satoshi is, but he created, I think, a million Bitcoins back in 2008 or so. Um, and... Uh, he just declared this is a, a currency. It was going to be valuable. And so now we have thousands of these things, several thousand currencies as far as I, I, I can tell. Uh, the number keeps growing day by day. Uh, and it's just the strangest thing. Some group of promoters or sponsors will get together and say, here's a new currency. It's worth something. And then a bunch of people believe that it's worth something. But it's not backed by anything. Uh, you know, and you can say that about some financial assets, you know, but stocks are claims on corporate profits. They're pieces of ownership of a corporation. Bonds are claims on a stream of interest payments. Even a futures contract, which seems kind of weird, um, or other derivatives are usually claims on something else, a bushel of wheat or a, a bar of gold or, or, or a treasury bond. Um, these are about nothing. There's absolutely no intrinsic value to these things. Uh, and uh, like I said, I don't really understand what problem they, it is that they're trying to solve. They're supposedly anonymous, but eh, not really. Uh, uh, supposedly secure, but they disappear like crazy. Um, uh, it just, it's, it's a very bizarre thing. But anyway, the Bitcoin idea, which Nakamoto, whoever he or they were, are, um, said that these things would be coined um, through uh, uh, um, solving a pointless computer algorithm, a bunch of computer uh, problems that you'd have to, um, and it would get progressively harder to solve them as more were mined. And uh, they used words like mining, but it's just really solving some kind of pointless algorithm. And pointlessness is part of it. It's not like doing anything. Um, But once you solve this problem, you create a new Bitcoin. 
Uh, and the the quantity in circulation was limited. So as uh, as you approach that limit, it gets harder to create new ones, uh, and supposedly the scarcity value of them will increase. But you can't buy anything with them. So I don't understand what you know. What is the value of a Bitcoin except what people think it is? Um, and then this spawned a proliferation of imitators. There's Dogecoin, there's Ethereum, or just one after another. They all have different organizing principles, but the fundamental idea is there a, a currency uh, created in a computer network, completely distributed, decentralized. Uh, there's no like central authority like a central bank that or a treasury that creates them. Um, and um, they contain a blockchain, which is really basically the history a database, it's a history of that particular coin. Everything it's used, every transaction it's in, uh, creates this indelible record. Um, but again, I don't really understand what the point of it all is, but a lot of people have gotten very obsessed with them. So let me push back a little bit. Now, I'm not into Bitcoin, but I have read some arguments as to you know the theory of why it exists. So what they would argue is, and I'm reading some of this here from Investopedia, they say, Bitcoin is often referred to as a digital currency and as an alternative to central bank-controlled fiat money. However, the latter is valuable because it is issued by a monetary authority and is widely used in an economy. Bitcoin's network is decentralized, and the cryptocurrency is not used much in retail transactions. One can argue Bitcoin's value is similar to that of precious metals. Both are limited in quantity and have select use cases. Precious metals like gold are used in industrial applications, while Bitcoin's underlying technology, the blockchain, has some applications across the financial service industries. Bitcoin's digital provenance means that it might even serve as a medium for retail transaction transactions one day. So the idea is, hey, you have this centralized currency. Um, the, the trust in the centralized currency is sort of, it falls back on the trust in the institutions that issue that currency. But if the trust in, in the institutions goes away, then you need to have something with more inherent value that's decentralized, that can't be manipulated as much. And that's one of the arguments that people who are into Bitcoin would make. Now, I, I understand that there are problems with centralization, but um, when it comes to decentralization, I feel like a, a piece that Bitcoin advocates miss and, and uh, these sorts of advocates miss is that there's issues with decentral decentralization as well. So can you... Uh, walk us through that and tell us some of the issues with a, a, a decentralized currency and why that might also lead to problems, just different problems than a centralized currency? Well, you know, um, trust is very important in, in all kinds of economic relations. Uh, so if people lose faith in a currency, you know, real currency, real world currency, then it loses value. There's no question about that. Um, but on the other hand, right now, uh, with a euro or a dollar or a yen or pounds, you know, like major big, rich country um, uh, currencies, you can buy all kinds of things with it. Um, and, you know, you can't really buy much of anything with Bitcoin at this point. Now, the decentralization thing is mixed. One thing is, we don't, the governance structures of these things is really mysterious. Nobody knows who's controlling these things, who's behind them. Um, and, uh, you know, as opposed to a, you know, a, a, a legitimate currency, which has a central bank and a treasury behind it. Uh, and when they um, go into crisis, as we've seen uh, with um, the, the Terra uh, Luna uh, complex, uh, uh, the crisis of last week, um, they try to save it, but 
No one really knows who's trying to save it, who's behind it, whether it's backed by anything. They claim some of these are backed by, I don't know, dollars or Bitcoin, but nobody knows. Nobody, it's, it's all completely opaque. Um, so having a centralized currency, if you have a you know, financial crisis, you could have a treasury and a central bank step in with a rescue operation. You have deposit insurance. Uh, nobody's lost any money on a U.S. bank deposit since like 1933. Uh, where you know scams and thefts uh, happen in in the crypto world all the time. So the decentralization may sound like a virtue, but uh, if you're having um, some sort of crisis, a run of the currency, for example, then there's nobody there to uh, as a backstop. I mean, I guess I would say though that their argument is. When you look at the U.S. dollar and you look at the actions of the Fed, I mean, we talked to an expert on the Fed, and he was like, all they do is keep reinflating the bubble and kicking the can down the road and making the next crash inevitable and worse. And so their argument is, the, you know, the Fed is untrustworthy. Uh, our currency is effectively a house of cards. When you were like, well, yeah, with the real currency, you can backstop it, they would say, well, that's the problem, is that you're not really getting, you know, the currency is not functioning in a way free from coercion and control. So try to explain to somebody who is a Bitcoin advocate or is a, you know, a crypto advocate why the other issues with, with crypto. Because I, one of the things I read is that, and, and you briefly touched on this there, is that fraud is actually a huge problem. That they don't have a way of really addressing fraud. Once a fraud happens, it's like, well, what are you going to do? There's no, like you said, there's nobody you can go to that could try to re redress your grievances on that front. Yeah, I mean, if you have a problem with fraud in your credit card, you can sometimes get the bank to reverse it. Um, but you can't do that with crypto. It's irre irrevocable. Um, yes, I will, I'll agree that, uh, that the, the endless inflation, the endless bailouts um, have, uh, have, have been a problem. It's created um, this enormous financial bubble. <laughs> I got to say, uh, the, the, the whole crypto scene is a byproduct of that bubble. I think one of the reasons that crypto has exploded so much is that it's been this, you know, the Federal Reserve has injected trillions of dollars uh, into the uh, speculative circuits of, of the financial markets. And some of that has gone into uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, there, and we've seen... As in the last few weeks, as the Fed um, has begun to raise interest rates and talked a much tougher game than it's talked in years and years, um, that's part of the reason that the crypto market is falling apart. It's revealing itself to be not like gold, which is a classic hedge against inflation. And gold is also useful because you can carry it around and melt it and use, do the useful things with it. Um, it's very hard um, to do much of anything with a cryptocurrency. Uh, it's very hard to get out of them, by the way, sometimes. If you have any large amount of, of, of money in, in crypto, it's kind of hard to cash it in and, and, and uh, convert it to um, bank deposits. The banks look at as askance at it sometimes. Uh, there's no guarantee you can get get your money out. Um, but even so, you know, for all the problems of the dollar, for all the bubbles, for the inflation, it's still pretty solid. Like nobody lost any money during the financial crisis of 2008. People are losing money in crypto all the time. I just read there's this great blog um, by um, Molly kept by Molly White. Um, she's a software engineer. I just interviewed her for my own radio show today. Um, 
And uh, she's been keeping a log of all the, uh, it's called Web3 is going great. And she keeps a log of all the scams. She's got a running um, counter. Um, hmm. It's, uh, I think, nine, six or nine, seven billion dollars so far have been lost in the crypto market, which is like 9.6, 9.7 billion more than anyone's lost from a bank deposit. So, yeah, there sure are problems with the way the Federal Reserve has been running our currency, and there's plenty of problems with our capitalist financial system. Yeah, I'm very aware of that. I spent, you know, decades uh, um, talking and writing about that stuff. But this is not a, a, a solution by any means. Um, and, you know, let me make two other points. One is, in the 19th century, the U.S. had multiple competing currencies. Banks, local banks could issue their own currency. Uh, and uh, it created all kinds of bubbles and frauds and disasters. And then finally, the U.S. government and a couple of actions in the, the second part of the 19th century uh, made the dollar uh, legal tender the monopoly currency for the U.S. Uh, and it stabilized things a whole lot because the, those Wild West competing currencies were just a, 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 a mess. They created one financial crisis and fraud after another. So crypto is kind of resembles that. We've got like two or 3,000 of them, I think, at last count. Um, you know, there's, it's... it's Certainly, Bitcoin and then Ethereum are really dominant in this market. But you know, they're, they're having this proliferation of currencies really does nothing um, to um, make life easier for anyone. Um, and um, the fact that you can't buy anything um, is uh, you know, also um, <laughs> a real downside to this currency. It's much more of a speculative asset than is a currency. And uh, we've seen that um, as, as it's sold off uh, dramatically. Bitcoin is, what, off 40% in the last few months? Um, that's not what you want with money. I mean, you may want that with a speculative asset, but if you want to have a savings account or some kind of cash, you want that to hold a stable value from day to day. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that, because my understanding, at least, is that the original conception of crypto is it would be a replacement for, you know, as a unit of exchange. The idea wasn't, let's create a new speculative asset, because who really would find that to be a super compelling story? And yet, what you have more and more is this is, in fact, just primarily used as a speculative asset, and the idea that it would be actually a unit of exchange seems to be uh, more and more uh, fanciful. So, why did that particular promise of crypto not come true? Well, for one thing, uh, it's extremely volatile. And like I said, you want cash to be more or less stable. So, uh, for example, Bitcoin over the course of its life has had an average monthly uh, uh, change of 27%. It moves up or down an average of 27% a month since it's um, – you know, so I think around 2010 was when I first started quoting prices on it. Um, the dollar, you know, we've got 8% inflation now, yes, but uh, it's predictable from month to month and it holds its value from month to month. So nobody who's going to you know, get a paycheck and um, and put it in the bank and, and spend it as the month goes along is going to want to um, put it uh, that money in, in, a, in something that can move up or down by – 27% over the course of that month. That's a, a, a preposterous thing to do. Uh, and that's part of the reason that nobody really accepts it. Um, as, a, as you know, there are a few things you can buy with it. I guess you can buy a Tesla with it, but uh, that's about it. Um, and there are not many other things you can do with it. Um, and uh, there's just no compelling reason for any merchant to uh, accept Bitcoin um, because of the risks involved. If uh, yeah, Mayor uh, Eric Adams, the, the newish mayor of New York City, decided he was going to take his first three paychecks in um, 
in uh, Bitcoin. And somebody did the math on that and figured out that after taxes, uh, uh, given the, the crash in Bitcoin uh, last several weeks, um, Adams ended up with a paycheck of something like negative um, $500 because he'd actually lost money on the deal after paying his taxes. Wow. Wow. And what about, you know, one other argument I've heard in favor of crypto is this would be a way to evade um, – to, to get around if the U.S. is levying sanctions against a country that, you know, they really shouldn't be. Um, so especially for ordinary people in that country to be able to conduct business internationally or do what they need to do to move money around the globe, um, that Bitcoin or other forms of crypto could be an effective means of doing that. What do you think of that argument? Well, it's quite possible. And I think the U.S. use of sanctions is going to undermine the international role of the dollar, uh, which has been a cornerstone of U.S. power um, for ever since the end of World War II. Um, so, you know, there's a risk uh, from sanctions and also a risk uh, to American power from sanctions. But um, the problem with the Bitcoin, you can get it across uh, borders, but then what do you do with it? Like if, if you're Ukraine getting contributions in Bitcoin, and I think they've gotten, what, something like $100 million uh, equivalent of, of, of crypto contributions, if they're going to buy weapons or food or pay um, salaries, they're going to convert them to dollars or euros. So... You're going to need the, the real world currency, um, and uh, the, the the crypto really doesn't solve that problem. So one of the things that advocates of crypto would argue is that you know I've heard many of them mention the tremendous amount of like income and wealth inequality that we have under our current economic system. But uh, then when you look under the hood a little bit, when it comes to Bitcoin, there's actually tremendous income and wealth inequality in the world of Bitcoin as well. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's extremely concentrated. Um, by, it's, it's, it's really hard to figure out exactly what's going on in the world of Bitcoin uh, or any of these cryptos because nobody really knows who owns what or who controls what. But uh, there have been efforts to try to figure out just how concentrated the holdings are, and they're extremely concentrated, far more than like you know, stocks or, or conventional financial assets, and far, far more than uh, income. Um, is so, yeah. There's, there's. It's not a cure for inequality by any means. The, the, the language around it, they're gonna, uh, the unbanked, are going to um, be helped by the the, uh, the the proliferation of crypto, or um, somehow going to um, help the disadvantaged. There's really no evidence of that at all. Um, uh, surveys show that most of the people who uh, who do it are. Um, sort of middle to upper middle class um, white guys. I mean, that seems to be your your modal um, crypto player is is uh, just what you'd think, some kind of uh, tech-oriented um, white guy. Um, and uh, it's not really um, democratizing finance in any meaningful way. Crystal, it, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. you told me the other day that you read something that said, I forget the exact number, but like some very low percentage of crypto is actually used as a currency. What, it, what, what was the number, if you remember off the top of your head? I don't know if you said it was like 6% or 8%. I'll try to look it up as you guys talk here, but I think it tiny. was— <laughs> whatever it is, it's tiny. Yeah. Well, one of the stats that you had actually um, brought up in that video you did for the Gravel Institute, which I highly recommend to everyone, is the fact that actually the peak of its use for transactions passed years ago, which just shows you— this is no longer about really using this as a unit of exchange. It's another speculative asset that happens to be backed by really nothing. Now, you could say, look, I mean, there are a lot of currencies that are basically just based on trust and not really backed by anything at this point. 
But as you're pointing to, those are backstopped and guaranteed by governments, especially if you're in the U.S., you know, the dollar is the global currency of exchange, um, gives it some real, you know, backing and sort of institutions behind it that makes it a good deal different than crypto and also is actually useful as a unit of exchange. I'm curious um, what you think about the questions of whether the crypto crash, which is coinciding, of course, with a broader uh, market sell-off, whether you think that has the potential to have a sort of contagion effect in other or domino effect in other parts of the economy. Well, I just want to underscore the point that the dollar is ultimately backed by the the, all the stuff you can buy with it. Right. Uh, and once you stop being able to buy things with dollars, then well, we're in really serious trouble. But yeah, that's that's really what makes it a, a, a money valuable, whether you can buy anything with it. And yes, the uh, you know, people are just not doing that with crypto and do, if anything, doing it less than ever. Um, I've seen studies that say that Almost no participants in the crypto markets have actually sold significant amounts of it. Um, so everybody, you know, uh, what is it, HODL, H-O-D-L, what they all wanted, to the moon. I and mean, then that whole um, language that came, became familiar in the meme stock episode of, uh, of last February um, um, applies to the crypto world. They just, um, the, the, the true believers think it's going to the moon. I just saw some guy who came out. Crypto is now selling for I think just under thirty thousand dollars. One, I mean, sorry, a one Bitcoin is worth about just under thirty thousand dollars, and these people claim it's going to be worth five hundred thousand at some point. God knows why. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, well, and this is part of the thing that honestly makes me really sad because a lot of the people who are getting hurt the most by this are you know young people who sort of believe the hype. They wanted to get in on the ground floor of whatever the next of what the next big thing was. You know, they seen the way that the markets have been rigged for the big guys, and they're like, maybe this is a way I can get in on the side of like the ones for whom the rigging is being done. And so ultimately, it's these uh, small fish retail players who are getting scammed the most. Um, and that's a part of it that I really, you know, that I find really upsetting because a lot of time, you know, sometimes these are these are people whose parents lost their home in the housing crisis. Like they've seen financial collapse in this country multiple times and thought, aha, here's my way to be on the happy end of one of these deals. And now it's all slipping away from them. I mean, we covered how uh, uh, with Terra Luna, the stablecoin that you were referencing, which actually isn't backed by anything. It's an algorithmically generated stablecoin. So they use this sort of like financial engineering. I won't get into the complicated mechanics of it to try to keep the peg at a dollar. Well, that collapsed completely. And there were people who had their entire life savings in this thing. And on their Reddit, uh, their subreddit, they were posting suicide hotline numbers because so many people were saying, "I there's like this is the end for me. This is it. I'm ruined. I'm finished." That's what makes this such a um, so disturbing to me because I see so many people getting taken advantage of. I see so many celebrities who have jumped on board with this who are getting paid to pump and promote Matt Damon, um, Spike yeah, Lee, right? Getting paid yeah. to promote different versions of whatever you know crypto is paying them and. It just ultimately has amounted to a gigantic scam, which once again hurts ordinary people the most. Yeah, I think you, know, you can look at um, um, when when Coinbase, the uh, the crypto exchange, went public <coughs> a while back. Um, the the founders and all the senior executives sold a bunch of the stock um, uh, directly with the uh, as soon as it, as soon as they could, mm. uh, which indicates that the insiders don't really have a whole lot of confidence in the long-term wow. viability of this stuff. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, it's really sad to see how people have fallen for this. And you're right about the environment that it arose in coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, people saw you know, younger people today, especially have grown up in, in a world where capitalism has not worked very well at all. I mean, none of the, the promises that it was supposed to uh, uh, fulfill of uh, some degree of universal prosperity seem very believable right now. It just seems like a big uh, con job to a lot of people. But unfortunately, the, you know, the, the approach they took to uh, dealing with that is to get Im- to embrace an even bigger con job, uh, something even less substantial than um, you know, the, the normal um, bubbles well, of and capital. Well, and I just think that was part of it, is there was this realization, like, this whole thing's a fraud. Like, what the Fed is doing is, is fraud. The stock market is, like, the idea these stocks are based on some inherent value that's really intrinsic is nonsense. And so they looked at the whole thing, and they're like, okay, so, yeah, this is based on maybe even less, but is it really fundamentally any more fake than the rest of the economic trappings around us. Well, again, you know, we do have a productive economy. It does make things. (laughs) There are goods and services. You can buy food. You can, you know, rent a house even, you know, under very unfavorable um, circumstances, but you can. Uh, And you can't do anything with crypto. It's completely empty, completely. um, A friend of mine uh, once wanted to write a book called The Nothing-Based Economy uh, because Mm. she thought that everything was just, you know, had gotten so um, um, fictitious and insubstantial that uh, the the foundations just weren't there. But, uh, you know, compared to um, uh, crypto, you know, the, the conventional U.S. economy looks pretty solid uh, for all its problems. Um, it's, you know, it's sad to say. I mean, we certainly could use a whole lot more security in the real world, but the way to deal with the insecurities and volatilities of, of normal capitalism is not by embracing another crazy thing. You know, we had, what, in February of 2021, we had the whole meme stock thing, um, which uh, was actually the peak in a whole bunch of speculative stocks. Um, all these supposed disruptors, uh, uh, like even Zoom and all these these pandemic stocks. That's about when they peaked. So when you have um, when you have uh, the public getting involved in a big way in some kind of speculative bubble, that's usually a sign it's coming to a peak. And that certainly was the case with the meme stocks. And then uh, crypto seemed to have peaked uh, a few months later, at the end of of last year. Uh, And it's been drifting lower since. So all that just uh, seems like it is, as they say in Wall Street, taking gas. Well, I'm I'm sympathetic to when uh, there was like the GameStop revolution and the AMC thing, because they saw that you had these hedge fund ghouls shorting GameStop and they decided, well, what if we just get on a Reddit board or something and all of us decide we're going to buy GameStop and drive it up? And then the government stepped in on the side of the hedge funds to put the kibosh on the whole thing. Remember that Robinhood app? It was the Robinhood app sell. basically in collusion right. with the hedge funds. Or they didn't let the you buy it. They it. only let you sell it. So, th- so there was like a whole bunch of you know fuckery behind the scenes on that front. But I wanted to come back to, because I found the two facts that I was referencing before. Well, first of all... Um, when it comes to what you actually can buy with Bitcoin, uh, the list is – wait, am I on the wrong link here? Yeah, I was on the wrong link. Uh, it's luxury watches, electronics, and cars like you mentioned, Tesla, I guess, certain cars. That's really the only thing that's on the list, which leads me to my next fact, which I was the, trying to remember the number that you cited the other night. Uh, according to Cointelegraph, they say 10% of Bitcoin usage is transactions. 90% is speculation. So 90% is people buying it just hoping that it's going to go up 
because other people buy it. Right. And so it's not really used much as an actual currency, which of course was the original idea, which to me, I mean, on that fact alone, that strikes me as a massive red flag. If they were still, I don't know, are they still expanding in terms of the things that you can buy with Bitcoin? I know you said that they peaked in terms of how much it was used as a currency previously and it's gone down every year, but are they trying to expand in terms of, hey, maybe you could buy this or that now or are different places considering accepting Bitcoin now or is that... Or is the game up and it's everybody well, realizes this is just rank speculation? Doug, wasn't, didn't El Salvador try to switch to Bitcoin yeah. and basically went south? Well, they did declare like a second currency. El Salvador doesn't have its own currency. They use the U.S. dollar normally. Uh, and then uh, this very libertarian right-wing president came in, uh, whose name now escapes me, um, who's, uh, among other things, sending you know death squads after the gangs. But he um, also declared that he was going to make uh, Bitcoin legal tender. You could pay your pay your taxes with it. Um, he was going to try to sell bonds uh, to generate uh, to, to to mine fresh uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, using a volcano for power. It's like it just the, the the financial news has gotten so surreal these days that so people are calling these volcano bonds. So El Salvador is going to issue volcano bonds to create Bitcoin, but most people in El Salvador say no, no thanks. I mean, the only people who are playing with it were, as I said earlier. Um, pretty well-off, educated white men, um, and um, you know the rest of the, the population doesn't want to have any part of it because it's mm. just it's too obscure. It's it's, it's and, and and too volatile um, yeah. to to, uh, to to use as money. Yeah, and it's, and it's funny. And whatever efforts they have, uh, the promoters have had to um, spread the use of Bitcoin for ordinary transactions. I would think that the uh, you know the crisis of the last couple of weeks uh, was going to put the kibosh on that. Yeah. So. What's your take on what's going to happen from here, though, with that? Because, you know, it's possible that this is the bubble bursting and it's going to really implode. Or it's possible that, you know, just like previously, sometimes there were some sharp declines and then it'll pop back up and then it'll be another year or two before you see another massive decline. So what's your take on, is this the one? Is this the downturn to end all downturns? <laughs> well, there's no saying on Wall Street, never predict anything, especially the future. So uh, I try to avoid that. But um I would say that what's different this time is that we're now in a much more hostile monetary environment. We have the Federal Reserve um, very determined to fight inflation, at least for now. Who knows if they'll change their mind? But uh, right now, um, they're going to be raising interest rates uh, and uh, taking out some of the money they put into the financial markets over the last decade. Uh, and that would be a very, very bad environment for a speculative asset like crypto, especially one that's just purely a speculative asset uh, with with no claim and anything real at all. So I would say the future is not terribly bright for, for um, these um, these currencies. Uh, we just don't know how deeply spread this is into the broader financial system, whether, yeah. um, you know, we've got some hedge funds are no doubt in it. Um, it's, you know, got a lot of uh, individuals who probably have, uh, are pretty, a lot of borrowed money. They probably, a lot of people borrowed money to speculate in crypto and uh, then will be on the hook as, as its value declines. Um, I don't think it could cause a financial crisis on its own, but it could certainly participate in a more generalized crisis. Um, you know, I, you, you, alluded to, you were talking about this before, and I totally agree that you know we've been uh, we've had as a matter of national policy now, <laughs> starting really in the 1980s, but especially over the last 10, 15 years, we cannot 
um, let a, a bear market take its course. The Federal Reserve will move in and uh, prevent a financial crisis from spreading. Now, I understand that they don't want to create another 1929 to 32 collapse. Uh, and so in the moment, it seems the right thing to do to um, bail things out. But then you have this longer term issue that when there are bailouts and no failures, um, then uh, um, things just get more and more reckless with each uh, iteration. Uh, so I don't know whether the Federal Reserve is de determined to wring that whole mentality out of the system or whether the system cannot live with that kind of um, um, that kind of uh, old-fashioned consequences for bad um, financial decisions. There's an old saying that uh, um, uh, capitalism without bankruptcy is like Catholicism without hell. And, uh, you know, we've um, had a, a financial world with no hell uh, now for for many, many years. And if we're going to have a, a return to hell, uh, Jay Powell, the um, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, is a Catholic, so maybe he wants to bring back hell. I don't know. But uh, um, uh if we do have a different kind of financial environment now, that would be very, very bad news for the crypto world. What is your assessment of the current financial landscape? Um, as you're alluding to, you know, the Federal Reserve has already hiked rates a couple of times. Um, at the same time, they are engaging a fairly aggressive, um, you know, removing of assets from their balance sheet, which they accumulated more than they ever had in history during the coronavirus uh, recession, even more than what they did during the financial, the, the housing bubble crash. So, you know, where do you think we stand? Do you think that they have a chance of actually pulling off the soft landing that they're trying to engineer? I don't see how they do a soft landing on this um, because— you know, we've had between the, the, the financial crisis and the corona crisis and all those trillions the Federal Reserve has pumped into the financial system um, and there's, you know, very, very large um, federal deficits. Um, and it seems like the underlying fundamentals of the economy are so sick that they can't um, uh, – survive under its own power. It needs that kind of constant outside stimulus. And I'm not sure um, what it's going to look like if they, they remove that. Um, if you see uh, financial crises developing, which seem pretty inevitable, um, if we're going to have this kind of um, um, uh, tightening, uh, and if you then see the economy lapse into recession, uh, and um, there'll be a whole lot of political discontent, uh, it could get very, very ugly. One thing, parenthetically, that worries me about the crypto world is that it's not exclusively right wing, but a lot of really, you know, alt right types are very deeply uh, invested in crypto. It's uh, Richard Spencer once described Bitcoin as the uh, the currency of the alt right. Um, if these folks lose a lot of money um, and they're very heavily armed, it's kind of scary to think what uh, what, what may happen um, as a result of that. But yeah, I, I think we're in a very very difficult time. Um, we're not. Uh, the fundamentals of the economy are rather poor. Um, corporations have really not been investing very much money in, in plant and equipment and useful productive assets. They've been spending an awful lot of money buying their own stock to boost its value. Um, public investment um, is barely keeping up with depreciation. So, you know, as things fall apart, they're barely being replaced. So, like, the, the capital structure of this country is a mess. Um, the infrastructure is a mess. Uh, and to... Um, to do something to improve the economic fundamentals would be very difficult to imagine in the current environment. I mean, Biden couldn't even get you know through 
build back better. But, you know, we need a whole lot more of that sort of build back better stuff in order to uh, turn the real economy around and to do something about uh, the, the maldistribution of income. Um, uh, but, I, it, you know, it just seems impossible for our political political system to produce what we need to do right right now. So I don't know. It's, it's easy to get uh, in a very dark mood very quickly if you think too much about this stuff. So uh, my experience with people who like crypto is that they're overwhelmingly more like libertarian leaning. Um, let me ask you this question. Let's assume for a second, for argument's sake, that um, we don't see this gigantic downturn continue with Bitcoin and it rebounds. What would uh, a potential ceiling be for Bitcoin? Like how far could it go? Because um, it this just a gut feeling I have, not really based on anything, is I can see it functioning almost in this in a similar way to how gold functions. How gold is like a hedge against the dollar. Whenever you have a giant economic downturn, and you know the Fed fires up the money printers, then the price of gold tends to rise. Whenever, so I feel like it's possible that Bitcoin ends up acting like that. Am, am I wrong? And if so, why am I wrong? Well, anything is possible. Um, but, you know, gold has been around for thousands and thousands of years, and it has a long standing. And so also the gold market is actually pretty small. I mean, it, uh, people pay a lot of attention to it. But, you know, it's nothing compared to the size of, of the conventional financial markets. Uh, so I suppose Bitcoin could serve that kind of function. Um, it is deliberately scarce. Um, there's, you know, there's, it, it will cease to uh, be... There's a, there's a peak on how much uh, how many Bitcoin can be uh, created and, and be in circulation. So, uh, with that kind of scarcity, it may acquire a scarcity value. But on the other hand, you know, if people look twice at it and say, "What exactly is this?" Um, you know, I don't well, know. The uh, the other thing is that seems to argue against that is the fact that it has fallen in concert with the Nasdaq. So the idea that yeah, it would be it's, a, a it's sort not of hedge store of value has not borne out whatsoever so far. No, I mean it's not behaved like gold at all. I mean, gold has been pretty flat uh, over the, as inflation has risen. It's not actually risen very dramatically, but it's been pretty flat. Um, and um, at the other hand, uh, the cryptos are are, are swooning uh, it, it, as the Federal Reserve tightens. So it's not exactly acting as the inflation hedge it was supposed to. Um, and you know, part is just like unwieldy. Um, you can't get your money out very easily. You can't spend it on anything. Um, and God only knows what it would happen if there is any kind of really um, fervent selling of these assets. Um, you know, I think we've seen some selling, but not not you know gigantic amounts of selling. Uh, and uh, I don't know if there's anybody to sell this stuff to. What, once people start heading for the exits, you could have a real uh, you know, trampling scene, people getting trampled on the way out the exit. Yeah. I mean, that's what you saw happen with Terra Luna, certainly. Yeah. So, Doug, that was a pretty small one. Yeah. Uh, Doug, my final question is, um, so when it comes to crypto more generally, I've told everybody, I I started out relatively agnostic. I've, uh, you know, maintained agnosticism, uh, but definitely lean more in the skeptical direction. When it comes to NFTs, I am not agnostic. (laughs) (laughs) I I look at NFTs and uh, the arguments never made any sense to me. Um, it it has a lot in common with multi-level marketing scams and like pump and dump schemes, and it's very evangelical by its nature. Um, what do you think of NFTs? Is it what it appears to be, which is like a colossal, very obvious scam? Because at least I could theoretically understand the arguments behind Bitcoin and crypto, even if I might not be on board with it. 
I don't even understand, in theory, what the arguments are for NFTs. Like, you're paying for the digital rights to a picture of an ape, a cartoon yeah. ape. You don't even own the picture, and the picture is infinitely re reproducible, and you own a little piece of, you know, some code uh, on the blockchain. Um, yeah, it make, none of it makes any sense to me at all, um, but, you know, the true believers really believe. Uh, I saw a very interesting video by a lawyer a few weeks ago um, who said, legally speaking, it's not even clear you own anything when you own an NFT. Um, the, the law behind it is very murky, uh, hmm. and if you sell it, you know, if you sell your NFT, it's not clear that your ownership rights, such as they are, could be transferred even. So uh, re legally, it seems like NFTs rest in a very, very, very shaky foundation, if there's any foundation at all. Uh, none of it makes any sense to me. And uh, But it's funny what uh, somebody bought the NFT of Jack Dorsey's first tweet for, what was it, $27 million? Oh, my God. And then tried to sell it, and he couldn't get more than like 27,000 for it. So Oh, like, I thought it was less than that. I thought it was $115, yeah, it was, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I might have been reading about a different wow. about a I different tweet. Remember, but yeah, there's, there's just no uh, there are no buyers for it. Yeah, the the NFT market seems to be falling apart right now. But yeah. it makes sense there's nothing there. You know, right. there's less than less with Bitcoin it would seem. Uh, I was looking at the numbers. NFT sales fell to 25,000 last week. That's an 80% drop in sales from the peak last fall. But I do want to disclose, um, I have a conflict of interest here because I am actually an investor in an NFT. Um, Sagar and I, with Breaking Points, we purchased the NFT of the very first seconds of CNN Plus. Um, which, <laughs> nice of course, troll. was doomed to failure as, you know, just as a sort of historical moment that we in our audience could enjoy for, for life. So I do want to just disclose, I do have a little bit of conflict of interest when it comes to <laughs> that's, NFTs. That's worth less than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth something you have to, to me. You have to pay to give that to somebody. that's all that matters. <laughs> Here, take this yeah. and take $100 with it. <laughs> when I wrote my Nation article on Bitcoin in 2014, I bought a little and then uh, sold it. I lost money on it. I'd probably, you know, a thousand air if I'd kept it. Yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> there you go. My mom actually owns some crypto. You should talk to her about. Oh, that. I tried, but she's she'll, <laughs> she keeps CNBC on in the background and stuff, and I'm like, you know, these people know nothing, right? But yeah, they've just they look professional, so too. she's like, oh, they must be serious. They've just jumped all on board too. Yeah, I know. Um, Doug, thank you so much for helping us understand this today. We're really grateful. okay. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah, our pleasure. All right. Bye. All right. So that was Doug Henwood. Um, you know, it's interesting. You don't people sort of intuitively get that the way our financial system works is kind of a scam, you know, that with the massive amounts of income and wealth inequality, um, with the decline of unions and, like, stagnating wages, and, um, you know, the stock market is kind of a house of cards in many respects, yep. uh, things are rigged in, like, a bunch of different ways. And as a result of that, you have people, maybe some sincerely trying to create alternative systems that function better and are more fair. Yeah. But I think there's a blind spot many people have where they don't realize that just because something is new and different doesn't mean it's inherently virtuous. That something that's new and different could also be scammy in its own respect. And I think that's the trap a lot of people fall into when it comes to crypto. Um, there's massive issues with it. There's massive issues with it from the fraud, which, you know, it's nearly impossible to get your stuff back if something happens to it to other issues with decentralization. It's, um, I almost feel bad for people who've gone like full uh, evangelical oh, about it, you know? For those people. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's kind of, 
exposes the problem with libertarian ideology in general. It's like the only thing worse than the federal government and all its failures is not having a government at all. So like, I mean, I was thinking about, there was a story I read a while ago, I think it was in New Hampshire, where there was some like town that some ideological libertarians came in and took over and they basically stripped like every regulation that they basic, that they completely could. So they they took over the town council, they got rid of every single regulation. And then lo and behold, because the town had regulated how you dispose of trash to not attract bears, people stopped doing it properly. And you had this epidemic of bears coming into the town, you know, and doing what they do and a bunch of, you know, people getting injured and attacked by bears. And it was like, you know, the government has a lot of problems and can certainly get captured by industry. And Lord knows we criticize it a lot. The answer to that is not just get get rid of the institution altogether. Um, because ultimately, yeah, if you're a depositor who gets defrauded, you have that bank st- uh, backstop by the federal government. Um, you have a, a mode of redress, whereas with Bitcoin, you don't. Um, the dollar is, you know, obviously we're experiencing inflation now and it doesn't go as far as it used to, but we're still talking about manageable rates of inflation. You're supposed to have not, 1% to 2% every year. Not yeah. wild swings of 40%, of, you know, up and down and all over the place. And so I do think that there was this ethos of like, like you said, we see through this financial system. Yes, yeah, Like after the house, housing, like we get it. This is fraudulent. It's based, it's like a scam. It's rigged. That is all true. But the answer to that isn't to create another system that's based on even less and is even more fictitious. And ultimately, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people have been scammed by this. I mean, that's just the the bottom line. You have all these pump and dump schemes, celebrity influencers being paid to hype up something that, you know, they get paid whether it goes well or doesn't go well. And um, ultimately, it's, it's disgraceful what's been done to people. So my whole thing, though, if you want to invest in it in crypto, go right ahead. You're a free person. You can do that if you'd like to. And I'm not going to cast any judgment on you if you do that. All I'm saying is understand what you're getting into and understand that um, only 10% of it is used as currency and 90% is speculation. So just understand what you're betting on and what you're investing in. Uh, It's not— You're betting on that there are going to be more people— Right who buy into the hype. Mm-hmm. That's what you're betting on. And you're ultimately betting that there are going to be a lot more people behind you who also buy into the scam- scheme and buy into the hype because you're certainly not investing in like an actual store of value or something that can be used as a mode of exchange. I know somebody who made tens of millions from Bitcoin because they got in super early. Yes. But even if you talk to that person, they know what it is. They know this is a massive speculative bubble. You know, so... You can do it if you want to do it. All I'm saying is understand what you're getting involved in. You know, before the Fed existed, we're, we had a great guest on when, who was talking about the Fed with us mm-hmm. a while ago. Christopher Leonard. And, like, we have had this detailed conversation about how terrible the Fed is and what they're doing and how it's exacerbating many problems and how they're handling things in the wrong way. But then also what's clear is that prior to the Fed, it was a mess. Yeah. Like, it was arguably— even way worse. Yes. Because you had these wild swings. And well, that's sort of what you see with crypto is that, okay, so you have this currency that's this new kind of currency. Yeah. It's a decentralized currency. And oh, would you look at that? It fell 27% in a month or whatever. It's like, what? That's right. not something you can really, it's not stable. Right. It's And Doug referred to this as well. There was this sort of like Wild West period in the U.S., 
of all kinds of different competing currencies, and you couldn't possibly, like, you know, if you were coming from a different state and you show up at a hotel and somewhere else, you couldn't you couldn't uh, confidently know that they were going to take whatever currency it was that you happen to have with you. And so centralizing the currency, creating the Federal Reserve System, all of that was meant and has worked in, um, you know, broadly to bring sort of stability to um, the monetary system. Uh, the problem is that over the past uh, two decades in particular, you know, the Fed, and I don't think this is an accident, as the ability to do anything politically through the legislative branch has crumbled, the Fed has been leaned on more and more to basically do everything with regard to the financial system, and they only have a few tools. So basically, you know, in response to the crash in 2008, they uh, bought up a lot of assets. They basically backstopped the market. They looked at that and said, okay, well, that seemed to work out okay. So, and they put interest rates all the way to zero. So let's do that again, only, you know, times, I don't know, times three, times four during the COVID crash. But the problem is then eventually the bill comes due because you can't hold those assets on your balance sheet forever. You've inflated these gigantic asset bubbles. You've created massive inequality because obviously if you're an asset holder, you 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 know benefited, you prospered from that tremendously. If you're not an asset holder, then you're sort of on the other side of that unhappy divide. So it creates a lot of problems, and it's very difficult to unwind, and we may well be facing down a recession because of the need now to, you know, tighten the rates and get the inflation under control and try to wring a lot of this excess and these bubbles out of the system. Yeah, so all—basically everything that is speculative, the air is going to come out of the tire. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, and yeah. and it's not just crypto. I mean, crypto is, like, the leading edge of this. Right. NFTs mm-hmm. are, like, the most speculative. Crypto is, like, just behind that. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, you look at the, you know, regular market, and these these valuations were insane. Mm. I mean, all of these asset categories are massively inflated. And even though we've had significant market sell-offs and all of that over the past number of months, still, um, there is a lot of excess in the system. And what I always say is, listen, you may not have benefited on the way up, but you are very likely to suffer on the way down. And that's um, very afraid. That's what we're facing yeah. right now. Yeah, and that is what happens. Um, all right, guys. So uh, if you like the show, we like you too. <laughs> um, go check out our Substack. Uh, $5 a month gets you the video of all the interviews, and it gets it to you a day early. You also get our wonderful newsletters from Piper. Shout out to Piper. Um, you and- also get to see that Kyle is wearing a Hug Dealer t-shirt. Oh, people which, see that. If you're not a subscriber, you don't get the video. You wouldn't even know that Kyle right now is wearing a T-shirt with a picture of a cat on it that for some reason says Hug Dealer. Now, you may be wondering where he got this shirt, and the answer is I bought it for him. So for all of you who No, your it, daughter I, bought it for me, right? Well, I mean, it was my money. So yeah, but she picked it? it out. I'm giving her credit for I it. I actually picked it out. Did you really? With you, yeah. But oh. I, I picked it out because I knew my 14-year-old daughter, who was really funny, would enjoy it. I was right about that. It's a great shirt. We made a joint purchase, I guess I'll say, of yeah. that shirt for you. So for all of those who... Thought maybe I would help Kyle with his style choices. I have actually. You did. I actually yeah. degraded them. We should. Uh, <laughs> that's not, this is not a degrade, degrade, it's, or degrade, whatever. It's not. It's it's an upgrade. Um, we should get a whole bunch of like absurd shirts for me that say things that make absolutely no sense, <laughs> so that every time I'm on air, somebody will be like, "What does that shirt say? Uh, you really? Why does it say horny see, waffle? I don't understand." You really have to <laughs> see the cat on this shirt to really get it too. There's something about like this little. Happy, sort of smiley-faced cat with blue eyes. 
Hug Dealer. It's a great, it's a great shirt. It's anyway, help us get more Hug Dealer shirts. Sign up on <laughs> Substack, five dollars a month. And for everybody else who doesn't uh, want to pay the five bucks and get the video, you should still sign up on Substack for free because you get the audio delivered right to your email box as soon as it drops every week. So with that being said, we love you guys. We'll talk to you soon, and we're out. Ski. Yeah.